Who do people say I am? I get the question. I'll bet you do too. Ever been misunderstood? Ever put your heart and your life into something? Being clear and transparent as you can be? And no matter what you do, no matter how you explain it, no matter how you say it, no matter how you demonstrate it, people still don't see it. People still misinterpret it. They create a narrative of their own, narrative of their own, so that whatever it is you may be trying to present is easier for them to accept, more comfortable, perhaps. Who do people say I am, Jesus asked of Peter. John the Baptist, back from the dead. Elijah, back from the dead. A prophet of some unknown origin, probably back from the dead. I mean, why would Jesus even ask? Jesus knew who he was. I believe he did, but I think also as he overlooked the crowds, he must have wondered aloud to those closest to him. Are these people getting the message? Or are they focused on these signs and these magical healings? Is that what they see? I didn't come here to be a healer or a magician. I came here to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, here, now. In fact, it is so at hand that these signs they see are all around us. These healings and these witnesses, these healings and these, this, it's all a witness to the presence of God that is so abundant, so much around us, that even the stones are ready to call out. Are they getting the message? No. There's only one explanation to all these miracles, healings, feedings, charismatic preaching. Must be John the Baptist. It's got to be Elijah. It's a prophet. Back from the dead. So then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, the same Peter that in a few moments is going to rebuke Jesus, the same Peter that not too long from now is going to deny that he ever knew Jesus, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples who doesn't often seem to get it right. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter, looking for the Messiah, the anointed one, as in kings who are anointed and considered Messiah, kings about to bring great change and upheaval, a people of the injustice, the suffering of the times, with the chance to be a part of that and close to that power, Peter turns to Jesus and says something like, you are the Messiah, Jesus. You will soon be our king, and we will rule faithfully by your side. There is great and amazing days ahead. Look around. Jesus, look at all that is happening. He didn't say it as an expert. He says, Jesus, because it was Jesus. He says, Jesus, look at all that's happening. The crowds, the healings, the fervor, the enthusiasm of the people. Just look. Oh, my, what a great day is ahead. As God anointed Saul to be king, you, Jesus, are the next one ready to be anointed king. You are the Messiah. And we are going to be with you as you rule. 
It's no wonder Jesus said to Peter, Peter, don't, don't tell anybody this. In fact, he warned them, don't make this foolish talk. Even you who have been with me all this time, even you don't get it. Jesus goes on and says, this isn't about ruling on earth. This is about the kingdom of God that is here. Now, the presence of God that has no rulers on earth. In fact, there's probably not too much time before all of this causes us so much trouble that we're going to be under even greater pressure and persecution. We are going to be rejected. We're going to be rejected even as being Jews based on this threat we bring to the powers around us. In fact, we're going to be threatened so much so that it may cause me my life. And when it does, if it does, I fear not the death of the body. For after the time of transition, I will be with Abba in heaven. So Peter, don't go hastening the process by telling everyone I'm the Messiah. We need all the time we can get to do all the work we can in proclaiming the kingdom of God that is at hand. Of course, Peter, out of his great love for Jesus and his aspirations, perhaps, aspirations to be part of that next great inner circle, close to the anointed king, responds to Jesus' personal, pleading, transparent, and direct words <laughs> by rebuking Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying such things. He must have seen himself as, you know, the advisor to the next ruler the spin doctor, the campaign director, the manager. He rebukes Jesus. Now, Jesus, you listen to me. You are on your way to greatness, and, you are going, and we are going to be with you. Think of all you can do as king. We are going to be enormously famous, powerful, and we are going to change the world for the better. Probably no comments at that point about contraception, <laughs> but not far from what we know today. You can see Jesus frustrated even with the ones who were closest to him, with this one that he had taken under his wing, dismayed that even Peter, even Peter still had it all wrong. And so he upbraided him. Probably not too calmly. You Satan, you selfish, dense one. Do you think I'm here for human concerns? You really think that's what I'm here for? You guys are making me crazy. How will I ever succeed in this ministry if even those closest to me don't get it? And so Jesus, probably pretty worked up by the exchange, turns to everyone gathered, assuming now that everyone thinks one way or another close to Peter, he turns to the crowd and his disciples and he says, okay, everybody, listen up. You, all of you out there looking for royalty and riches on earth, forget about it. If you are following me, instead, be ready to carry your cross, your burdens, with all of those crosses and burdens of others. This is not about finding a treasure on earth. This is not about having to have all your trials and tribulations addressed, assuaged, and erased. This is bigger. It's greater. This is God. This is the presence of God here. And now that you are missing, you're missing it. You're ignoring it. 
And if you want to find it, you're going to have to be willing to lay aside what you have come to believe as your life, your aspirations, and greed for a life of power, riches, and success. You're going to have to set it aside and carry the good news of the gospel to others. That's the deal. If you're here, that's what you're here for. You're looking for anything else, go somewhere else. That's what this is about. It is about proclaiming the good news that you're loved by God and of God, and we, in reflection of that love, are here to love and care and serve others. It's the gospel. Anything else? Anything else that you think this is about? You're going to be ashamed of such thinking when the time of your transition comes about. You'll realize that what you wasted in pursuing what you thought had value had no value at all. How ashamed and disappointed you will be. In so many ways, we are much like the disciples who we say Jesus is, I think depends on what we want. More specifically, what we want out of Jesus. And isn't that the same of our relationships with one another? Isn't who we see as the other in some ways based on what we want from them? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong in wanting things of others. There's no value associated with wanting things of other good or bad. At least I don't think so. I do think, though, that the value is assigned long before we articulate or are aware of what it is that we want of others. It is assigned deeply in our motives, in the ways we have learned to love, either unconditionally or with conditions, and in the way we serve. Do we serve for our own comfort? Or are we willing to be in tension with others when the soul is at risk? This last week was a very busy week. Among the call of this congregation and community to serve was the memorial service held for Anthony Horton on Wednesday. You probably know that Tony died in a fire deep in the belly of the New York City subway system where he had found some abandoned rooms. Rooms he wired with electricity and made home. As I listened Wednesday to all the wonderful and true things spoken about Tony, I was somewhat surprised that there was no spoken, sustained outreach about the conditions under which Tony found himself forced to live. Were the topics too difficult to talk about? Was the healing taking place in that community on Wednesday just too fragile to address the horror of what it must have been like to see no other choice but to view chronic homelessness and living in the dark and among the rats as, that's Tony. Is it some part of some greater romantic notion, Tony, of urban self-preservation, rugged individualism, finding identity in the despair and loneliness of alcoholism, lived out in part below ground, unsafe, marginalized and lightless in lightless endless tunnels with little hope of any direction for the darkness offered no direction 
Or were these just too difficult to talk about because we knew these things? And we knew the answers and the actions were hard. Were we feeling as though we might have done more than side with Tony in his choices? Even if it meant losing his friendship? Had we become like him? Accepting the arguments of the streets is not safe. Can't help myself by going to shelter. Streets aren't safe. Do we accept that argument for the argument that the subways were safe? Is it just easier to do? Was it easier because it made Tony feel better? Was it easier because it was easier not to challenge him? Or was it just easier? Now I should say this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I do not believe that anything we might have done would have changed what happened to Tony. I just don't believe that. This is not a guilt trip sermon. In fact, it's me trying to work some of this stuff out over the past couple of weeks. And this is my place to do that. This is my vulnerability. These are my questions. This is my stuff that spins me at night. For me, it's a question about who do we say we are when it comes down to who we say Jesus is. Is it a question of what else we are accepting because it's easier to accept than to disrupt? Jesus disrupted everything. He got crucified for it. And yes, I'm haunted by the question, what will we do the next time as we remember this time? Is there more meaning for us in the life of Tony and his death than closure? Like the disciples that surround Jesus, it seems that part of the human condition is to create our own narratives to avoid some of what is most uncomfortable to see or to do. We know it by many names, including the denial that says to us, under the most horrific of conditions, everything's fine. It seems, too, that in the course of discovering what it is we want of Jesus, so that we can say who he is to us, Another way of saying who we are ourselves. It seems that the only choice that may, we may ever know is the one that only we will hear from inside. Because there will be others attempting to rebuke us, to change our minds, to move us in their direction, for their comfort. Is it? Will it? Will we be strong enough when those around us try to persuade us by such rebukes or entreaty to accept or not accept what should never be accepted? Only you can say. I can't tell you. <laughs> Only you can say. Who do people say that I am? Whatever they say, they will really never ever know because only we will know who we really are by the decisions we make when we ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus? Amen.